Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to be able to bring to you a talk by Dr Lucy Andrew as part of the University Centre Shrewsbury's public events programme at the Guildhall, Frankwell Quay, Shrewsbury, on the 10th of November 2018. Dr Andrew is a lecturer in English literature and programme leader of the English degree at University Centre Shrewsbury. Her research specialisms are in crime fiction, children's and young adult fiction and popular culture. She is author of The Boy Detective in Early British Children's Literature, Patrolling the Borders Between Boyhood and Manhood, and co-editor of Crime Fiction in the City, Capital Crimes. She has recently been teaching Jack the Ripper fiction on her new criminal fictions module at University Centre Shrewsbury, and her presentation focuses on Ripper fiction and popular culture, and is entitled Capturing Jack the Ripper, the Ripper Mythos, 130 years on. Hello, I'm Dr Lucy Andrew. I'm a lecturer in English Literature and programme leader of the English degree at the University Centre Shrewsbury, where I teach and research crime fiction, children's literature, young adult fiction and popular culture. My talk today is entitled Capturing Jack the Ripper, The Ripper Mythos, 130 years on. Now, I'm not exactly sure when I first became aware of the Ripper. He always seems to have been there in some form. And yet I can probably pinpoint what sparked my interest in him, the film From Hell. Or, let's be honest, my interest at that point was probably in Johnny Depp. But his character, Inspector, Inspector Frederick Aberline, was interested in Jack the Ripper, and so, by extension, was I. And this film, and Alan Moore's graphic novel on which it was based, was inspired by an actual Ripper theory put forward by Stephen Knight in his book Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution. Now, I'll come back to this theory later. It's certainly an interesting one, um, if somewhat outlandish. And the more I looked into the whole Jack the Ripper business, the more I found theories lots of theories put forward by Ripperologists. Stories, even more of them, some based in fact, or at least in theory, others much more obviously fictionalised. The more I looked, the more I found the Ripper was everywhere. Why? Why so many stories, so many theories? Why so much interest? Why haven't we moved on? It's 130 years since the Ripper's Autumn of Terror. He took his last canonical victim, Mary Jane Kelly, on the 9th of November 1888, in the most brutal of his known attacks, and the only one to occur indoors in Kelly's own lodgings at Miller's Court. And then he just disappeared. And this, of course, is one of the main reasons why we're still obsessed with the Ripper today, because we don't know who he is. We don't know what happened to him because 130 years on, he's still very much a mystery and we do love a good mystery. Now, of course, we know some things about the Ripper, the details of the murders themselves and the five canonical victims. Some Ripperologists suggest that there were several more victims, others that there were fewer. We know the details of the investigating officers. We have evidence from the crime scenes. We know about the letters purportedly written by the killer and sent to the press and those involved with the investigation. The Dear Boss letter, the Saucy Jack postcard, the From Hell letter, the Openshaw letter. And the case was widely publicised in the press at the time of the murders. 
we have a very long list of suspects. The more outlandish, the better. Prince Eddie, Queen Victoria's grandson. Sir William Gull, the royal physician. Artist, Walter Sickert. Author and nonsense poet, Lewis Carroll. There's even a suggestion that Jack the Ripper was a woman, the so-called Jill the Ripper theory. So many suspects, so little surviving evidence. Now, I can't tell you who the Ripper was. I don't even have an inkling. And honestly, I'm not sure whether I want to know. Of course, if someone was handing out a definitive answer, I'd be right at the front of the queue. But wouldn't it spoil the fun a bit if we actually knew his identity? Isn't that mystery the main part of the allure? Yes, and I'm well aware here that these terms are problematic, fun, allure, when I'm talking about the brutal murders of real-life women. But the real Ripper has gone, and his absence has left a space that has been filled instead by a myth. I called this talk Capturing Jack the Ripper in a very clickbaity way, but what I want to focus on is not a literal attempt to catch Jack the Ripper, but to explore instead how he has been captured on page, on screen, and in a broader range of weird and wonderful ways. I'm looking here at the construction of a myth, a fiction, and I want to start with Ripperology itself those books, those theories, which claim to be factual, definitive, but are actually really in themselves a kind of fiction. I'm going to start then with Stephen Knight's very dramatically titled Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution. So first of all, where are the origins of this theory? Well, parts of the story have been traced back to Robert Lees in a newspaper article published all the way back in 1895. But the immediate trigger for Knight's book seems to have been a theory posited by Dr. Thomas Stoll in the November 1970 issue of The Criminologist. Although apparently Stoll had first shared this theory some 10 years before with ripperologist Colin Wilson. Um, now, Stoll claimed to have discovered the identity of Jack the Ripper from the papers of Sir William Withy Gull, the royal physician. And Stoll didn't refer um, directly to the Ripper by name, but merely called the suspect S. But several of the details here pointed towards Prince Eddie, Queen Victoria's grandson and heir to the throne. The fact that S had a beautiful mother and a gay cosmopolitan father, for example. That he went on a cruise at the age of 16, where he apparently contracted syphilis. That he was nicknamed Collar and Cuffs. Now, on the 5th of November, Stoll wrote a letter which was published in the Times four days later, which denied that he had identified Prince Eddie as Jack the Ripper. Stoll mentioned Sir William Gull in his evidence, suggesting that Gull was actually pursuing a syphilitic, syphilitic patient here, um, who was Jack the Ripper. And Stoll himself died in November 1970, shortly after the article was published, and his son then proceeded to burn all of his papers. Stephen Knight, who develops Stoll's theory further, then opens his own book on the case as follows. Jack the Ripper is a misnomer. The name conjures up visions of a lone assassin stalking his victims under the foggy gaslight of Whitechapel. It is just this mistaken notion, inspired almost solely by that terrifying nickname, which rendered the murders of five East End prostitutes in 1888 insoluble. For Jack the Ripper was not one man, but three, two killers and an accomplice.
Now Stephen Knight's version of the theory was this, and you might be familiar with many of these details if you read or watched from hell. He said that four of the five victims knew each other. Now he claimed that Catherine Eddowes was killed by mistake. Montague Druitt, a notable ripper suspect, was apparently used as a scapegoat for the murders. Knight says that Sir Robert Anderson, Assistant Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, helped to cover up the crimes. Arthur Walter Sickert became a mentor to Prince Eddie, and Eddie apparently posed as his brother. Then, in Knight's um, assertions, Eddie met Annie Crook, a Catholic shop girl in Cleveland Street, where Sickert's studio apparently was, and Eddie fathered Annie's child. Eddie and Annie were secretly married, with Walter Sickert and Mary Kelly as witnesses. Mary Kelly, who worked as an artist model for Sickert, was employed as the child's nanny. Now, this apparently true story came out through a 1973 BBC documentary on Jack the Ripper, in which Joseph Gorman, or Joseph Sickert as he apparently was, um, he claimed to be the son of artist Walter Sickert, gave crucial evidence. Um, the story continues that Cleveland Street was raided, Eddie and Annie were taken away, Annie was confined to institutions until her death in 1920. Mary Kelly then apparently took the child Alice, who was later returned to Sickert and ended up throughout her life in various workhouses. Mary Kelly herself fell in with a gang of prostitutes and devised a blackmail plan. William Gull, noted Freemason and royal physician, was tasked with disposing of the prostitutes who were involved in the blackmail plan. Gull apparently issued Annie Crook with a bogus certificate of insanity. Gull was driven to the East End by royal coachman John Netley and carried out the murders according to Masonic ritual. The women, apart from Elizabeth Stride, were murdered in the royal carriage. Netley apparently pursued Annie Crook's child, Alice, and tried to murder her on two occasions after the Ripper murders. Alice grew to adulthood, married an impotent man and became Walter Sickert's mistress. She apparently bore him a child, um, here, Joseph Sickert, who is giving part of the evidence here. Stephen Knight suggests that Walter Sickert himself, rather than Sir Robert Anderson, was the third man involved in the Ripper case, alongside Gull and Netley. And Joseph Sickert penned an afterword to Knight's book in which he responded to the theory. Here he says, When the author told me his conclusions about my father's involvement in the case, I was disturbed. There is no point in denying that I was also angry. I felt he had let me down and betrayed my trust. But later I had to admit that my father must have known more than he told me. It was a fact that I had half realised all along and possibly one of the reasons I allowed my story to be investigated in the first place was that I hoped new facts might be uncovered that would somehow dispel my worst private fears about my father. In the event, the investigation has had the opposite effect and my fears have been confirmed. Now, what's most interesting to me here isn't the theory itself, but how Knight makes the case for it. As with any Ripper theory, he has to fill in the gaps. He has to imagine or suppose here. But look at the way in which the whole thing is constructed. It's framed as a dramatic, rhetorically convincing narrative. 
First of all, we have a foreword from another Ripperologist, Richard Whittington Egan, author of A Casebook on Jack the Ripper, which nicely sums up the process of Ripperology, but also lends authenticity to Knight's theory. He says, more ink has been spilt on Jack the Ripper than blood flowed in all of his murders. Millions upon millions of words, which if placed end to end, would stretch from here to nowhere. Because when all has been written, the evidence accumulated and assayed, the theories counted and discounted, the arguments for this suspect wax hot and wane cold, we have always ended up precisely where we started, in a grey limbo of unknowing. Always, that is, until now. Now, Mr Stephen Knight presents us with a most cleverly worked out, plausible, brilliant even, solution in his thoughtful, wide-ranging book. I speak with feeling, for I myself has zealously pursued the red shadow through the twisting alleys and thwarting cul-de-sac of 35 years. So we get a real sales pitch here. The whole, nobody has solved the case, but maybe this guy finally has. And also some very florid language. Now, Ripperologists frequently tear down other theorists. The new book, whoever it belongs to, stands apart from its predecessors. I haven't been taken in. My book is different, they say. And perhaps the most scathing of all is Bruce Robinson of Wisnell and I fame. In his mammoth book, They All Love Jack, Busting the Ripper from 2015, where he denounces Ripperologists and Ripperology altogether. In his author's note, Robinson suggests that the Ripper is in a house of smoke and shifting mirrors. There are glimpses of amorphous faces. Many Jack the Rippers are here, feeding off what historical fragments their keeper can throw into the pit. Middle-aged men with disturbing expressions lean over the safety rail, clutching files. These are the Ripperologists. They are waiting for the Rippers to come out. He continues, this book has no interest in the House of Mirrors, and despite selective admiration for some, no interest in Ripperologists. I don't believe this collective could catch the object of its aspiration in a thousand years, and furthermore, I don't believe in the mystery of Jack the Ripper either. They have stories to these books, stories of the Ripper, of London society, but also stories of the authors and their quest to solve the case. Often these authors become the detective protagonists, the heroes or less frequently heroines of the Ripper story, finally laying to rest the mystery that has baffled the police and London society at large for so long. In the early chapters of The Final Solution, Stephen Knight tells the story of how he met Walter Sickert's apparent son, Joseph. The secrecy around the case, the hoops he had to jump through to satisfy Joseph Sickert as he fought to gain his confidence. In her book Portrait of a Killer, Jack the Ripper case closed, crime writer Patricia Cornwell tells a rather self-indulgent story about her reluctance to write the book, and her initial lack of interest in and knowledge of the Ripper case when she was first invited to Scotland Yard and she initially turns down this um, invitation for a visit. Though quite frankly, I'm not sure that I believe her assertion. I had never read a Ripper book in my life. I knew nothing about his murders. I did not know his victims were prostitutes or how they died. But she suggests that she must write the story because she alone knows the truth and she owes it to the world. It reads, perhaps unsurprisingly, given her background, like a novel. 
Cornwell suggests here that she has moral responsibility to tell the story. And perhaps she really believed that she did. But for me, it seems that for at least some, the object of Ripperology is less to find out the true identity of the Ripper, but more to make a compelling or unique case for a particular suspect. The more high profile or outlandish, the better. Russell Edwards starts his 2014 book, Naming Jack the Ripper, with a story about attending an auction to buy a shawl that reportedly belonged to Ripper victim Captain Edo, Catherine Eddowes, who was apparently wearing it when she died. His theory revolves around the shawl, um, which is subjected to DNA testing, which he claims confirms the identity of the Ripper, Aaron Kosminski, who has long been a Ripper suspect. Um, this is interesting to me too then, the changes in the approach taken to Ripperology. The different accounts might in some way reflect the world in which they're produced in some way. For example, at the time of Stoll's Royal Conspiracy Theory, um, published in 1970, there was a strong appetite for government cover-up conspiracy theories. There have been many surrounding John F. Kennedy's assassination in 1963 and his brother Robert Kennedy's assassination in 1968. Russell Edwards' Naming Jack the Ripper turns to modern policing methods, focuses on the power of forensics and DNA evidence in a CSI-obsessed world. And it sees this as the answer to solving the mystery of Jack the Ripper. Of course, many scientists have pointed out the likelihood of getting accurate results from an item from the 1880s is pretty low. No matter how far science and policing efforts have improved, the likelihood of authentic evidence still existing is very slim. Ripperology, then, is a type of fiction, a genre of its own. But from the earliest days of the Ripper case, there have also been overtly fictional renditions of the Ripper. And the Ripper is quickly mythologised here. In many of the depictions, he becomes a gothic, monstrous, supernatural figure. An 1888 illustration from the satirical magazine Punch depicts the murderer as a demonic spectral figure, the nemesis of neglect stalking London. Gothic fiction was enjoying a revival at the end of the 19th century. Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1886, for example, later Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray from 1890, and of course, Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1897. In these texts, Gothic monsters were used to represent real-life contemporary anxieties, the duality of man, fin de siècle decadence, fears of racial and homosexual contamination, and to contain or thwart them, um, as the monster is in some way slain by the end of the narrative, and also is a recognisable individual, and importantly, in, in human foe, and hence detached from humanity. Just so did the Ripper, a real-life physical threat, who represented random and despicable male violence against women, become a gothic monster. In fact, there is a connection with Jekyll and Hyde itself, the play adaptation was being performed at London's Lyceum Theatre during the time of the Ripper murders, and actor-manager Richard Mansfield was playing the title roles. Now, apparently his transformation from Jekyll to Hyde was so convincing that he was actually accused of being the Ripper by terrified theatre-goers. The earliest fiction directly based on the Ripper case was published as early as November 1888 and incorporated Gothic elements. 
John Francis Brewer's The Curse Upon Mitre Square incorporated the real-life murder of Catherine Eddowes into a fictional narrative of a supernatural curse. An advert for the novel reads as follows. There is a spot in the midst of one of the busiest parts of London, which is accursed, whether by the power of the evil one or by the vengeance of the almighty, we know not. But one thing we know, and that is that deeds of the foulest and crimes of the vilest have been committed there on the same identical ground from the days of Henry VIII down to our own day. Mitre Square, where Catherine Eddowes was murdered under circumstances so shameful that full particulars cannot be printed, has been cursed by villainies of even a worse kind from the year of Grace 1530, where the high altar of the Priory Church of Holy Trinity, Oldgate, was in existence over the very spot. What can we do to atone for those horrors that they may be stayed? What can we do? This is a cry of public lamentation and woe. Now, obviously, this is a sensational account. It's meant to entertain, to thrill. But the inclusion of the supernatural here also distances it from reality. It makes the Ripper murders safe, distant, in a way that, of course, they weren't in November 1888. It also offers an explanation not a real-life explanation, of course, not one that would satisfy anyone with a keen interest in the case. But the idea of an ancient curse, a product of God or the devil, takes the Ripper murders from the realm of the human and also suggests that these atrocities are part of a wider pattern, that Catherine Eddowes was one in a long line of victims over a period of several hundred years. In a way, then, the idea of a supernatural curse is less threatening than the explanation of a flesh-and-blood human being committing these atrocities. In Marie belloc Lowndes novel The Lodger from 1913, based on her 1911 short story of the same name from McClure's magazine, Mr and Mrs Bunting take in a lodger whom they later suspect to be a mass murderer called the Avenger, who's clearly meant to be Jack the Ripper here. Lowndes was actually apparently inspired by an anecdote she heard at a dinner party about a butler and a lady's maid who were convinced that Jack the Ripper had once lodged in their house. The lodger of the title is described wearing what was to become the traditional costume of many later Jack the Ripper incarnations. Um, on top of the three steps which led to the door, there stood the long, lanky figure of a man clad in an Inverness cape and an old-fashioned top hat. He waited for a few seconds, blinking at her, perhaps dazzled by the light of the gas in the passage. Mrs Bunting's trained perception told her at once that this man, odd as he looked, was a gentleman, belonging by birth to a class with whom her former employment had brought her into contract. Here, the lodger is named Mr Sleuth, and he escapes at the end of the narrative. He's a mysterious figure um, who isn't connected directly to any of the real-life Ripper suspects. There's a detective element to this story, too. The landlady, Mrs Bunting, is drawn to the lodger and becomes suspicious of his identity, although she's not successful in capturing the Ripper. 
There's perhaps a stronger detective element in Robert Bloch's first foray into Ripper fiction. Bloch was an American crime and horror writer, best known for his book Psycho from 1959, which was of course adapted by Alfred Hitchcock in the famous 1960 film. Bloch was a disciple of horror writer H.P. Lovecraft, and he was a frequent contributor to the horror and fantasy pulp magazine Weird Tales. He published his first Jack the Ripper story, Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper, in Weird Tales in July 1943. It was adapted for radio several times in 1944, 1945 and 1961. And there's even been a graphic novel version um, published in, in 2010. Block produced several other Ripper fictions as well, including an episode of Star Trek called Walk in the Fold from 1967. Um, the short story A Toy for Juliet for Harlan Ellison's collection Dangerous Visions from 1967. Also, the novel The Night of the Ripper from 1984. And, and a compilation of Bloch's Jack the Ripper work was published as Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper, later as well. But his first Ripper story, also named Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper, is widely thought to be his best. And in their book Jack the Ripper, His Life and Crimes in Popular Entertainment, Gary Coville and Patrick Luciano state that here, the Ripper emerges as not just a criminal harassing London, as depicted in Belloc Lounge, the lodger, but rather as an absolute malevolent presence loose in the civilised world. As such, and because of Bloch's theme, the Ripper has become a major figure in the literary genre of horror. The Ripper's name may be absent, but his presence is nonetheless sensed in the spate of slasher films whose narratives may or may not be rooted in the supernatural, but whose rendering are always horrifying, both aesthetically and morally. Hence, Jack the Ripper is now barely distinguishable from other such demonic figures in literature as Dracula and Mr Hyde. So Bloch's story reintroduces the supernatural bent that we see in The Curse Upon Mitre Square, but attributes this supernatural force to the Ripper himself. The story follows Englishman Sir Guy Hollis, who turns to American psychiatrist John Carmody for help in capturing the Ripper. The twist is that the story is actually set in the 1940s, and Carmody notes that the Ripper would have been very old or else dead if he were still um, in existence now. But Sir Guy has a theory. Suppose he didn't get any older, whispered Sir Guy. What's that? Suppose the Ripper didn't grow old. Suppose he's still a young man today. All right, I said, I'll suppose for a moment. Then I'll stop supposing and call for my nurse to restrain you. And Sir Guy claims that he is hunting the Ripper because he took my mother's life and the lives of hundreds to keep his own hellish being alive. Like a vampire, he battens on blood. Like a ghoul, he is nourished by death. Like a fiend, he stalks the world to kill. He is cunning, devilishly cunning, but I'll never rest until I find him. Never. Now, as seasoned crime and horror readers, we know where all this is going. One of the two men is going to turn out to be Jack the Ripper. But Block does a really good job here of keeping you guessing right until the very end when, when this scene happens. Wait a minute, said Sir Guy. Give me back my gun. He lurched a little. I'd feel better with a gun on me. He pressed me into the dark shadow of a little recess. 
I tried to shrug him off, but he was insistent. Let me carry the gun now, John, he mumbled. All right, I said. I reached into my coat, brought my hand out. But that's not a gun, he protested. That's a knife. I know. I bore down on him swiftly. John, he screamed. Never mind the John, I whispered, raising the knife. Just call me Jack. Now, as in the lodger, the ripper here prevails, escaping into the night. The detective fails. There's no sense of closure. But there is a distance again from the real ripper case. John Carmody is an invention. He's not a real suspect in a ripper case. And the supernatural element, though making his threat more pervasive, again deflects attention from the reality of a flesh and blood killer. The ripper's mythic status is confirmed here. He's an elusive supernatural being who can't be captured or contained. He becomes larger than life. He becomes uncatchable. Something interesting happens to Jack the Ripper's mythic status in the latter part of the 20th century, as he's pitted against the world's greatest fictional crime fighters, Sherlock Holmes and Batman. The Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper match seems to be an obvious one. They come from the same era, after all. And who better to solve a mystery that has confounded the police than the great Sherlock Holmes? Doyle never wrote the Ripper into his Sherlock Holmes stories, although Doyle himself has been put forward, of course, as a Ripper suspect by some, due to his medical training and his obvious interest in murder. But for me, there's a connection between Sherlock Holmes and Jack the Ripper. I would suggest that the Sherlock Holmes um, story's success relies in part upon the Ripper murders. Okay, so the first Holmes novel, A Study in Scarlet, was published a year before the Ripper murders, but it's not really until the publication of the first set of short stories, known collectively as The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, um, in the Strand magazine from 1891 to 1892, that Holmes really becomes a popular figure. And this is unsurprising, a detective genius with abilities far beyond those of the police who are represented as bumbling figures forever indebted to Holmes. At a time when the police have failed to capture a violent predator on the streets of London in real life, is it surprising that the public couldn't get enough of Holmes? And while the Ripper doesn't appear directly in the Holmes stories, Holmes's criminal nemesis, Moriarty, certainly has some Ripper-like traits. Like the Ripper, Moriarty is an elusive figure shrouded in mystery. He's clever. He outwits the police. He's a gentleman and an educated man. There's a theory, of course, that the Ripper was such, and he's often depicted in this way in fiction. Moriarty, like the Ripper, is a celebrity figure. He's at the centre of a powerful organisation and is able to escape detection and punishment for a long time. This connects to ideas that the Ripper was a powerful man and hence his crimes were covered up. Finally, Moriarty disappears. His body is never recovered from the Reichenbach Falls and yet his spectre haunts the home stories well beyond his death. You know, Holmes frequently mentions him in later stories. So Holmes versus Moriarty almost articulates the Holmes versus Jack the Ripper scenario. In fact, in Michael Dibden's The Last Sherlock Holmes Story from 1978, 
Holmes thinks that Moriarty is the Ripper, although, and I apologise for the huge spoiler here, it turns out that Moriarty is actually a figment of Holmes's imagination and has been committing, Holmes himself has been committing these murders. In a similar vein, the one-shot comic Gotham by Gaslight from 1989, set in 19th century America, identifies the character from the Batman universe as the Ripper. In the comic, it is Uncle Jake, a family friend of the Waynes, who's also responsible for the murders of Bruce Wayne's parents in this version. But there's a significant change in the 2018 animated film version of Gotham by Gaslight, as Detective Jim Gordon, a key figure within the Batman universe, is unveiled as the Ripper. In both of these scenarios, Jack the Ripper becomes a character from within the series. He moves beyond um, the real-world suspects to infiltrate the world of the characters themselves. So does this make him more or less threatening? Well, more in a way, I suppose, given that in both cases, he turns out to be a stable, heroic figure from within that universe. But again, by becoming Sherlock Holmes or Jim Gordon, he's moving away from the reality of the Ripper towards mythology. The From Hell narrative takes a different approach, grounding itself more firmly in the facts of the case and tied, of course, to Stephen Knight's Ripper theory. There's a great scene in the graphic novel um, where a man is trying to sell a pamphlet and souvenirs linked to the apparent curse upon Mitre Square after the murder of Catherine Eddowes. Now, presumably, this is supposed to be John Francis Brewer, author of The Curse Upon Mitre Square from 1888, um, the text that I mentioned earlier. Um, so we, he's seen here peddling his early Ripper story. And Inspector Abilene here speaks out against the growth of Ripper culture when Sergeant Godley asks him, you don't go much on this curse business then. Abilene replies, no, nor mad monks neither, nor with turning a miserable little killing into a gothic horror. I mean, just look at them back there. Four women get killed and it's like the start of a new industry. Only the start, mind you. Mark my words. In hundred years, there'll still be folk like him, wrapping the killings up in supernatural twaddle, making a living out of murder, godly. And that's our job. Now, I'm paraphrasing slightly to avoid an obscenity, but you get the general gist here. There's the glamour of, a, of royal cover-ups and Masonic rituals. There are the supernatural elements, although these are connected more to the victims and investigators than the Ripper himself in this narrative. But the Ripper here is a real flesh and blood man, a real Ripper suspect, Sir William Gull. The conspiracy theory is a neat way to address the issue that Gull wasn't publicly identified as the Ripper in real life, but notably he's still punished, both in the graphic novel and the film, as he is rather fittingly lobotomised. In the film there's a pleasing irony of the shot of him in the same pose as Annie Crook, whom he had um, earlier had lobotomised. Um, Jack gets his comeuppance then, even if he does avoid public exposure. There's a morality to this narrative, dis despite the blood and gore and sensationalism. The Ripper gets his comeuppance. In fact, he does in many of the more recent Ripper narratives. At times in these stories, he's a bogeyman, a monster. He's there to thrill and entertain. He's a mystery to be solved, but the mystery is solved. The rise of the unmasked, punished, 
um, contained ripper coincides with the rise of ripperology as well. Um, the huge number of attempts to identify the ripper. Um, and just as ripperologists have felt obliged to make a case for new candidates to the ripper role, so too has the fictional round offered endless solutions to the ripper case. Now, for the final part of my discussion, I'd like to turn to a more immersive and potentially more problematic way in which the Ripper has been represented. I want to begin um, with the 1964 hit song Jack the Ripper by Screaming Lord Such. Now, in a wonderful performance on Top of the Pops, we see Screaming Lord Such performing not just the song, but Jack the Ripper himself. He's taken on the iconic garb, the top hat and cloak and medical bag. In fact, he refers to these accoutrements within the song itself. He emerges from the crowd, terrorising young ladies as he goes, warning them not to walk the streets at night. He's a cackling maniac, a good bit of fun. And he immerses his audience in the experience too, particularly the young ladies who are screaming their heads off, apparently enjoying a good scare. And yet, doesn't it become a bit problematic, a bit insensitive when you think about um, this, the idea that this whole persona stems from the real life, extremely violent murders of women. Um, and this song is just one of many examples of Jack the Ripper culture. Ten years later, in 1974, we get a Jack the Ripper musical described by the Daily Mirror as a very amusing, bawdy knees up. More recently, we see Jack the Ripper feature in the epic Rap Battles of History series, where he's pitted against Hannibal Lecter, another famous serial killer with a huge following, although Lecter, of course, is fully fictional. Jack the Ripper becomes a figure of fun here then, a ludic figure, a property to cash in on. And there are all kinds of Jack the Ripper products out there. Jack the Ripper games, you know, computer games, board games in particular have become prominent. I myself have enjoyed playing a board game called Mr. Jack, which incorporates real life figures like William Gull and Inspector Aveline, but also fictional figures like Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. It's a two player game. One of you plays as the detective, the other as Mr. Jack, that is to say, Jack the Ripper. The detective is tasked with unveiling the identity of Mr. Jack before he leaves the board. Mr. Jack has to attempt to escape before the detective discovers his identity. That in itself then is potentially problematic. The idea of playing as Jack the Ripper and evading capture. The idea of siding with Jack the Ripper. There are more immersive experiences as well, such as um, the Jack the Ripper murder mystery dining experiences, or the London Dungeons, where Jack the Ripper is one of the, finger, the figures sent to scare you. And of course, we have the Ripper tours where you can visit Jack the Ripper's murder sites and the use of Ripper vision, which projects images of the murdered women, amongst other things, onto the walls of Whitechapel as you walk around the scenes of the murders. Now, I've been on one such tour. Um, very little of the Ripper's murder sites still exist. You don't get much of an atmosphere of Victorian London here, but the tour guides do do their best as they regale you with facts and theories to get you in the mood. And this is perhaps what shocked me most about the Ripper tour that I attempted. Not the murders themselves. I knew what I was getting myself into here. 
But the theatricality of my tour guide, the way he performed the Ripper story for the tourist audience, the sensationalist graphic details, reveling in the murders and their shocking violence. Now, I'm not blaming the guide here. The mainly tourist audience were lapping it up. This is what they wanted, a good, scary story. They didn't want the real Jack the Ripper. They wanted the myth. For them, Mary Ann Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, Mary Jane Kelly weren't real women. They were just players in the Ripper story. Collateral damage, if you like. And I'm sorry if I'm sounding a bit self-righteous here. I love a good Ripper experience as much as the next person. But some of this commercialisation, even celebration of the Ripper, has left me feeling a little uncomfortable. Here's an interesting example from the world of Canadian sports, and I have to thank my fiancé David for finding this little gem. Um, a Canadian minor league baseball team from London, Ontario, who were formed in 2011, um, call themselves the London Rippers, um, with their mascot here being Diamond Jack, who sports a top hat and a baseball bat. And needless to say, there was some opposition against the name and the mascot, particularly from the London Abuse Women's Centre. Apparently, the team president, David Martin, denied um, that his team name and mascot were based on Jack the Ripper, um, although they clearly were. Perhaps somewhat unsurprisingly, by 2012, the team was no more. Another controversy which you're more likely to be aware of is the Cable Street Jack the Ripper Museum in London in the UK, which opened its doors amidst great controversy in 2015. Now, the big problem here was that when the museum was awarded planning permission, it had claimed to be a museum representing the history of the lives of East End women. I haven't been to visit the museum. Um, but there is apparently scant information about the women themselves here, and perhaps not even that much good information on the Ripper. Inevitably, there have been numerous protests outside. The museum demands to close it, even windows being smashed. Um, and you can see from their, their webpage now um, that the PR team are really trying to rebrand the museum. Um, here on, on their opening webpage, they claim that the museum is dedicated to the history of the East London in the 1880s, providing a serious examination of the crimes of Jack the Ripper within the social context of the period. For the first time, it tells the story of the man known as Jack the Ripper from the perspective of six of the women who were his victims. Now, I can't tell you who their sixth victim is here or whether this is more than a superficial marketing ploy. But it's interesting to me that in these recent examples, the London Rippers and the Jack the Ripper Museum, people are beginning to speak out. The idea of imbuing the Ripper with celebrity status, of selling him, is raising a few eyebrows. And that there's a growing awareness here as well of the Ripper's victims and a movement to centralise them. Um, in fiction, we've seen series like Alan M. Clarke's Jack the Ripper Victim series, um, with each book focusing on, on in turn on one of the victims. In academia, early this year, Rebecca Frost released her study, The Ripper's Victims in Print, The Rhetoric of Betrayal Since 1929. And finally, in Ripperology, or perhaps that's the right, not the right name for it anymore. In February 2019, Hallie Rubenhold will release her biography of the Ripper's five canonical victims called The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper. 
So 130 years on, things are beginning to change in ripper culture. And I think that it's probably about time. And that was Dr. Lucy Andrew with Capturing Jack the Ripper, the Ripper Mythos, 130 years on. Please feel free to download the slideshow that accompanied this talk on the episode's podcast page at casebook.org. And we thank again Dr. Andrew for making this presentation available. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org, where you will find over 160 roundtable discussions author interviews and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper and Victorian crime. If you have any questions about our podcasts, feel free to find us on the Casebook message boards or on Twitter and Facebook by searching for RipperCast. Ripper.